would you all open up your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I think I'm just going to sit down here. You can all see me. Ephesians 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 13 this morning to continue to study about spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, and let me just read from verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Well, our uh, text today is verse uh, 13. And we've been studying the fact that we are in, as Christians, a spiritual war. Uh, We started studying this last week. But to be a Christian is to be at war. From, From the time you become a Christian until the day you die... You're constantly on the battlefield, always. A Christian uh, works, a Christian sleeps, a Christian eats, a Christian goes to school, a Christian vacuums the floor on the spiritual battlefield. It's always around us. There's no R&R, there's no shore leave. And we saw last week that the foe we face is a formidable one. Do you remember the three characteristics of our foe from last week? He's subtle. He's spiritual and he's stalwart. In fact, we face such an incredible foe in the evil one who would oppose our Christian life that we really can't even have any hope of winning this battle. The only hope we have is the Lord's power. And that's what we saw last week. If you were here, it says, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's only in Christ that we have the strength to win the spiritual war in which we're engaged. Well, this week I want to get a little more specific and sort of ask the question, all right, how does one go about waging a spiritual war? I mean, I, I understand the concept. There's a spiritual war. There's an enemy who opposes me in following Christ. But how specifically do you fight this battle? What does that look like? How does one do this? How does one wage a spiritual war? I mean, I know how to wage a physical war. You get tanks and guns and you go after the enemy. But how does a person wage a spiritual war? And I think at verse 13, we get the answer. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. So there's two aspects here. There's, first of all, put on the armor and then once you've got the armor on, stand your ground. You must be uh, equipped with God's power and God's armor and then you have to stand fast. Suit up, stand fast. That's how you wage the spiritual war. We, we put on the armament that God gives us and then we hold our turf 
and don't let anyone push us off it. Um, and so I want to look at each of those in turn. There's two commands, put on the armor and then stand fast, stand your ground. So first of all, put on the armor. We have to put on the armor of God. Now, that raises an immediate question for me anyway. I don't know about you, but I, I ask myself, well, what is the armor of God? I mean, what is it? It's obviously a metaphor, right? There's not literally a suit of chainmail or something I need to go put on and wear around, although that would be cool if we got to do that as Christians. Uh, but, but, you know, there's not literally armor. So, so what is the armor of God? I mean, um, I don't know. What, you guys have any guesses? We can make this a little more interactive, I guess. What is, what is, what is the armor of God? You know, what is it, actually? It's your protection. It protects us. Anyone else? The, the power that we have in Christ. Okay. Yeah, the sword, that's, a, that's an aspect. But what is the total armor? Yeah, the sword of the Spirit's the word. Yeah, what, what is the total armor? Well, let me tell you what I think it is. And then um, see what you guys think. And I'll show you how I got there. I think what the armor is, is the character of Christ. That the armor of God is the righteousness of God. The armor of God is uh, the holiness of God, the, the likeness and image of Christ. To put on the armor, in a word, means to put on Jesus. I think that's what the armor is. It's Christ himself. Now, that's my assertion. Let me prove to you how I got there, how I reached that conclusion. So all the things you guys were saying are, are, are part of it. I mean, it really is. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the, the power of God. And I think to sum all that up, that those are kind of aspects of it. I think that the summary is it's the image of Christ. It's putting on Jesus is what it means to put on the armor of God. So, uh, for instance, look at uh, verse 10. Let me give you three proofs for why I think this is the case. Verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Now that word finally is important because what it means is that this whole thing about the spiritual armor is really a conclusion from the previous chapters. In other words, I think a lot of times uh, Christians, when I hear them talk about the spiritual war, like Christians cite Ephesians 6, hey, there's a spiritual war, then pull it out of context, and then use that to just leap pad into all kinds of kind of unbiblical ideas about spiritual warfare. And instead, I want to take that passage and put it back in its context and, and see it's finally. In other words, when Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, he's drawing a conclusion of things he's already said. So chapters 1 through 3 is who we are in Jesus. Chapters 4 through 6 are, therefore, this is how you should live as a Christian. So when he's talking about the spiritual war, he's really taking a metaphor of warfare and using it to summarize everything he's been saying about living the holy and righteous life. And so I, have, I think you have to read the whole thing in, in its context. It's uh, in Christ, uh, live in Christ, be holy, and that's what it means to put on the armor and wage the spiritual war. It has to be read in context. In fact, take out your sermon notes for a minute, which is this little insert in your bulletin right here. You all know what the sermon notes are. And look on uh, page two. There's a box on the inside. A great quote by Peter O'Brien. He's a commentator who wrote a commentary on Ephesians. Uh, I think of all the commentaries I read on Ephesians, I, this is the best one. Uh, Peter O'Brien says, This paragraph, 6, 10 to 20, is neither an irrelevant appendix to Ephesians nor a parenthetical aside within, but a crucial element to which the rest of the epistle has been pointing. 
The moral issues with which he deals are not simply matters of personal preference, as many within our contemporary and postmodern world contend. On the contrary, they are essential elements in a larger struggle between the forces of good and evil. So, Paul's been talking about living a holy life that reflects Christ. Therefore, I think that because Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 is the conclusion of that argument, therefore the armor must have to do with holiness and righteousness. Or look at a second argument. The second argument comes from verse 11. The second argument for the fact that the armor of God really is putting on Jesus. It's in, in verse 11, that word, put on. See that? Put on the full armor of God. That's the word in duo in Greek. And it only appears one other place in Ephesians. Do you know where it is? It's in chapter 4, verse 24. Look at 424. Actually, let's start reading at verse 22. Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, my old sinful Jeremy that I used to be before Jesus, Jeremy B.C., before Christ, put that off, be made new in the attitude of my mind, and verse 24, to, here it is, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's the likeness of God, it's the righteousness and holiness of God. So what I think verse 24 is, is I think he's saying the exact same thing as in Ephesians 6. He's just using different images. It's really the same command. It's just in one, he's using the image of putting off the old self, putting on the new. In the other, he's using the metaphor of armor. But it's the same idea. It's putting on Christ's character and righteousness. That's what that means. In fact, this is really cool. Take out your uh, sermon notes and look at page two. If you look at that word in duo in the rest of Paul's writings, there's some incredible parallel passages in Paul's thought. He's used this image elsewhere. This isn't the only place. Look at uh, that first quote there, Romans 13, 12 to 14. Paul says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Let's put off sin. And put on the armor of the light. Very close parallel. And what does it mean to put armor on the armor of the light? He says, Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather... Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the cravings, the desires of the sinful nature. So the armor of the light is the same thing as putting on Christ, which is the same thing as putting on holiness and righteousness. Or look at the bottom. Here's another one. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So I think that this is another proof for why the armor really is Christ himself and his holy and righteous character. To put on the armor is to put on Christ, is to put on righteousness and holiness. But let me give you one third proof for why I think the armor of God is righteousness and holiness in Christ, why it's Christ-likeness. And it comes uh, from the nature of the armor itself. Go back to Ephesians 6, verse 14. Look what kind of armor it is, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So the armor is broken down into things like truth, righteousness, the gospel. In other words, the character of Christ, the things associated with Christ. In fact, this is really cool. Oh, this is so great. Do you know where, I'm going to get more into this next week, but oh, this gets me so fired up. Do you know where the armor comes from? I mean, did Paul just kind of pull out armor imagery out of the air? Where does the armor imagery come from? It comes from Isaiah in the Old Testament. Paul is really quoting the Old Testament. In fact, look at uh, page three of your sermon notes. I'm, like I said, I'm going to get into this more next week. But like, just for instance, look down at uh, that third quote, Isaiah 59, 16 to 17. It says, He saw, that as God saw, that there was no one, no one to save his people. He appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And you can look at these other texts. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Yahweh's Messiah in Isaiah put on these garments to go rescue and fight for Israel. And now the church, the, the, the true Israel of God, takes the armor of Yahweh and puts it on himself. They put on God's character. So I, I think that, that it, it's really uh, clear that the armor of God is nothing less than the likeness of God. To put on the armor of God is to put on God's righteousness and holy character. In a word, it's to put on Jesus. That's what it means, to put on Christ. <clears throat> So then that raises another question. How do we go about putting on Christ? What, what does that mean? If we're going to fight the spiritual war, I need to put on Jesus. So how do I do that? Do I have Christ on? Am, am I armed with Christ? That's the first question. Have you put your faith in Christ? Are you truly a Christian? Uh, I, I think one of the best passages that describes putting on Christ is in the very next book. Flip over to Philippians. Flip to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, a famous passage. Philippians 3, 7. This is an important passage because in a sense it, it's Paul's, uh, I'll say, life philosophy. I, I think this passage, if, any, if nothing else, summarizes Paul's total attitude toward his Christian life. Look at verse 7. He says, whatever was to my profit, whatever I had going for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what does it mean to be a Christian for Paul? What's the essence of the Christian life? It's summed up in one word, Jesus. It's knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, imitating Jesus, Paul's like, I want to suffer with Jesus. I want to rise with Jesus. I want to die with Jesus. Paul says, uh, any righteousness in my life, I want it to come from God. I don't want it to be anything I've done to, 
to say, look what a great person I am. I want it to be Christ's righteousness in my life. So the entirety of the Christian life is this, this knowing and imitating and living with Christ. That's what it means to put on Christ, is to have Him be your all in all and everything. And now, just so you don't sort of get intimidated by that and say, wow, Paul was really on a higher level than I am. I love verse 12. Verse 12 is very comforting to me. Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. And so the Christian life is, in a sense, putting on Christ when you become a Christian and then pressing on in putting on Christ. There's a sense in which it's happened, but also a sense in which I'm I'm pressing on. There's an already and a not yet tension uh, throughout the Christian life. So that's what it means to put on Christ. It means that Christ is my everything. There's this uh, story I read about D.L. Moody. Some of you uh, may know of him, that famous 18th or 19th century evangelist. And uh, he, he went all over country evangelizing overseas. And, you know, thousands would flock to hear him preach the gospel. And he shared Jesus with people all over. Well, there's a story of a time he was coming to a particular city to do an evangelistic crusade in that city. And all the local ministers got together to plan for D.L. Moody's coming. And, and they planned and organized. And, you know, we've got to get this ready for Moody and put this word out about Moody. And, and all this stuff about D.L. Moody started to rub this one young minister the wrong way. And he was saying, what is it with this Moody? Everything is Moody, Moody, Moody. And he said, what, does, the, does uh, Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit or something? And one old minister said, no. D.L. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. He said, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. And, and I think, you know, as I thought of the story, I was like, that's, that's putting on the armor of God. It's when God has a monopoly on Jeremy. Obviously, God has a monopoly. He owns everything. But in the sense of surrendering my life to Christ in every way, so that there's no part of me that's held back from Christ. Everything is his. I, I'm, I'm totally for him. And realizing that's a daily process of putting on that armor. I don't want to be like the, the farmer who had 100 acres of land and sold it to someone else, except for one acre in the middle that he kept for himself. And now the owner of that land has everything except that one acre in the middle. And now if that farmer wants to, he has the right to put a road right through the middle of the land and, and get to his one acre. And, and I don't want to be like that. I, I don't want to give Christ 99 acres and have that one acre in the middle that's still mine where, where Satan can build a road right to it. I've got to put on the full armor of God, not just the shield or not just the helmet. In other words, my whole life needs to be surrendered to Christ so that Christ is, is my life and understanding that it's a process, that I don't somehow reach perfection, but every morning I get up and in a sense I've got to rearm every morning. I've got to put myself in the hands of Christ. So the first step... Back to Ephesians 6. If you're going to fight the spiritual war, the first step is to put on the armor, to put on Christ's likeness, to let Christ be your all in all, to surrender your life to Christ completely. And then once the armor's on, stand firm. Now you've got to go out into the battle and do it. I mean, you can have the best armor in the world, you can have the shiniest sword, but you've got to go out in the game and get your uniform dirty. There comes that moment when the, the temptation is going to come, the test is going to come, and then we have to, you have to execute. You have to do it. You have to stand firm. I have to stand firm against Satan's attacks. 
Well, maybe it'd be helpful here to uh, define that idea of standing firm. I mean, what does that mean? Because obviously that's a metaphor too, isn't it? He's using battle imagery. Just as we, we had to define the armor of God, so now we have to define standing firm. Because, I mean, literally, he doesn't mean that we go stand firm. In other words, the Christian life isn't waking up in the morning and then, you know, just standing by your bed all day, standing firm. I mean, it's obviously an image. So, so what is standing firm? Well, I think the answer to that is standing firm is integrally linked to putting on the armor. The two have to be understood together. So if putting on the armor is putting on the righteous character of Christ through faith, then standing firm is living it out. Standing firm is, is doing it. If I'm putting on holiness, then standing firm means when the temptations and tests come that would seek to push me toward disobedience, I, I stand firm. Standing firm, then, is believing God's Word and doing it. Standing firm is obeying Christ. Standing firm is holding to your faith and doing what God wants you to do in any particular situation. That's how we stand firm. It's, it's executing who we are in Christ. Um, and I think it's important because, again, a lot of the talk about spiritual warfare, that I don't know, I've, I hear sometimes out there in Christian circles, uh, when Christians start talking about spiritual warfare, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they tend to start focusing on the exotic and the bizarre and the spooky, right? And, and, and the weird. That's where Christian, you start talking about spiritual warfare and Christians start talking about deliverance ministries and exorcisms and the occult and things like that. You know, that's the spiritual warfare that, that people are interested in. But, but as I look at Ephesians 6, Paul's not talking about those things. He's talking about following Jesus. That the spiritual war, that the meat and potatoes of the spiritual war is following Christ not fighting demons. In other words, when I look at, at Ephesians 6, I see more about obedience than about the occult. I see more about evangelism than exorcism. I see more about godliness than ghosts. There's more about holiness than Halloween. This is what Ephesians 6 is really about. And don't get me wrong, there's a place for that kind of uh, more confrontative battling of, of Satan. I mean, if, if someone is possessed... And, and they're, you know, they come into my office and they're possessed with a d demonic spirit, well then, you know, you have to rebuke the, the devil in the name of Christ. I mean, there's a place for that kind of praying. And, and so I'm not excluding that. I know that's real. And, and I know there are times when, when the church and Christians have to just resist the devil and rebuke him in the authority of Christ. But what I'm saying is, the meat and potatoes of spiritual warfare is not that. That the meat and potatoes is following Jesus and being obedient to him and that's where Satan really tests us. Read what the Puritans had to say about spiritual warfare. It's all about holiness and following Christ and doing his will. You know, let me give you, for instance, um, of, of this kind of thing I'm talking about. I remember I was in a prayer group once, and uh, there was this, uh, this guy at this prayer group, and he was telling the story. He was all excited about it. He was like, oh, yeah, I got this Christian friend up in New Hampshire, and he, he lives in this town in New Hampshire, and he was driving by this mountain one day, and he looked up on the mountain, and he had a vision. He said, on top of the mountain, he's had, he saw in this vision this huge demon with his arms outstretched over the town. And so this Christian went and told all his Christian friends. He said, oh, I saw this vision of this demon. So a whole bunch of them 
trucked up to the mountain. They went up to the top of the mountain, and they stood up there over the town, and they cast the demon out. And they prayed against the demon, and they figured out the demon's name that was over the town somehow, and, and they prayed against it, and they, they, you know, sort of in a sense did like a, a civic exorcism. You know, and, and, you, you know, so, and this guy's all fired up that, that his friends had done that. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah. You know, what, what do you do with stories like that? People have anecdotes like that. I mean, what do you do? I mean, do I believe that demons are real? Yes, I, I definitely do. Um, are demons located in particular places? Well, I, I suppose, since Satan is not omnipresent, he must be somewhere. And so, yeah, that's possible. Can God give someone a vision? God can do whatever he wants to do. Is it wrong for Christians to go up on top of a mountain and pray over their town and pray that God would thwart Satan's purposes in the town? No, that's not wrong. I mean, we should pray that God would thwart Satan's purposes in our lives and in our families. So that's not wrong. I mean, it, you know, so you look at the different pieces of it and you go, okay. But then I step back from it and I go, there's just something not right with this story. And, and I, you know, I try to wrestle. What is it that just doesn't fit? And I think what it is, is it's the focus has shifted from following Christ to fighting demons. There's just a subtle shift where Christianity now becomes that kind of stuff instead of following Christ. You know, it's sort of like Ghostbusters, right? And that's exciting. You know, it's ex and, and perhaps that's why we focus on that. Sometimes we talk about spiritual warfare. It's much more exciting to hear a story about an exorcism, or it's much more exciting to hear a story about praying against the devils in a town than it is to deal with the pride in my heart. It's much more exciting to do that than to deal with my attitudes <laughs> or to deal with the bitterness I have in me against you because of something you did to offend me. That's not exciting. That's not exotic. That's not, in, you know, that's just like, oh, I don't want to have to deal with my sin. But this is where the real spiritual war takes place. N not to negate the other sort of casting out kind of aspect, but I'm saying the day in, day out, meat and potatoes of spiritual warfare is following Christ and being holy. In fact, look at the way the devil attacks us. How does the devil attack? Look in Ephesians. There's two places in Ephesians where it talks about the devil attacking and fighting. Do you know where they are? One is Ephesians 2 where the devil is mentioned. And look at what he does. Ephesians 2, 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. B.C., before Christ came into my life, I was spiritually dead, in which I used to live when I followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Satan is working disobedience. His goal is not to spook us. His goal is to get me to sin. That's what his goal is, to get me to disobey Christ. Or look at chapter 4. Uh, chapter four, verse twenty-six is the other place in the devil, the other place that Satan is mentioned. Verse twenty-six says, "In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold, or it might be translated an opportunity." In other words, the real threat to South Shore Baptist Church isn't necessarily a coven meeting down the street that's casting hexes on us. The real threat to the church is when I'm sitting here with a chip on my shoulder against you that I won't forgive. That's where Satan's really going to get into a church and wreak his havoc. 
even though, you know, I mean, yeah, we've got to pray that God will protect us from whatever. But, you know, if that's where Satan gets in, is when I'm not forgiving and when I'm letting the sun go down on my anger against you, that's when Satan has a heyday in the church. The spiritual warfare is about godliness and holiness, essentially. Or just one other uh, line of, of reasoning. Uh, think about the three great battles in the Bible. There's, there's three of them. Where Satan directly fights against a person. Where Satan and a human being like go head to head, mano a mano in the Bible. Can you think of those three? What's the first one? Adam and Eve. Someone said Adam and Eve. Yeah, Adam and Eve is the first one. Right? Serpent. There he is. Satan inhabits a snake, or whatever that was, comes into the garden, and Eve is speaking directly with the enemy. And what was the enemy trying to get her to do? That's right, to sin. To disbelieve God and then to disobey God. That's what the battle, that's the core of the battle. The second one, I, I think, is Job. Uh, we, we might say Job is the next one. Satan comes in with God's permission. Satan wipes out Job's herd. Satan wipes out Job's flocks. Satan is even given permission to kill all of Job's children in one sudden natural disaster. A horrific kind of thing. And this is the kind of stuff where people say, I'm under spiritual attack, I'm under spiritual attack. Yeah, but, but remember, why did Satan do all those things? What was his real goal? Was it to, to wipe Job out economically? No, he was just trying to get Job to curse God to disobey and reject and stop trusting God. Or what's the, f the final great battle in the New Testament? Jesus in the desert, right? In fact, Jesus in the desert is kind of like Adam and Eve part two. Jesus is the second Adam. The desert episode with Satan is kind of a replay of the Garden of Eden in the tree. And so here Jesus is now, he's battling Satan. And again, the essence of it is Satan's trying to get Jesus to disobey the will of the Father and to take things into his own hands and sort of short-circuit his, his route to glory. And, you know, hey, take, make bread. You can do that. And, yeah, just take the kingdoms of the world for yourself. But instead, Jesus trusted the word of God and he did the will of God faithfully. So that the battle in each of those cases had to do with faith and obedience and holiness. So standing firm is integrally related to putting on the armor. If the armor is the character and righteousness of Christ then standing firm means that I'm going to follow Christ in whatever situation. And so we've got to stand firm. It says, when the day of evil comes, we need to stand our ground. In other words, when the time of intense testing comes, we have to stand our ground. We, got, we, we can't flinch. It was said of Roman centurions in the ancient world that to be a Roman centurion, you had to be the kind of man who under pressure would stand firm and not give way. That even though that the battle was coming, you had to be the kind of man who would inspire courage around you by standing firm, holding your ground, and not giving way to the enemy. You know, you know what this made me think of was the movie uh, Braveheart. I don't know if you've seen that movie with Mel Gibson. It's, it's about uh, this war in, I don't know, like 15th or 14th century Scotland, somewhere around there, and about this uh, guy who was actually a historical character, uh, William Wallace. And he led the forces of Scotland... Uh, against uh, the English who were coming in. And, you know, one of the problems is whenever the Scotsmen would rise up, there are all these little rabble of clans and farmers, and, and they try to come against the English, but the English had this well-trained army. And one of the things the English had that the Scottish couldn't stand up against was they had a cavalry charge. And no matter how, you know, they get all the Scotsmen together, but then the English would just 
get their cavalry charge and sweep right over through the, the, the Scottish lines and wipe them out. So William Wallace in the movie gets this plan. They go into the forest and they cut a bunch of young trees and make these poles and they sharpen them at the end. And, and so they form their lines up against the English ranks and, and they put their poles on the ground and they, and they conceal them, they camouflage them so the English can't see them. And they sit there and the plan is when the English cavalry charge is almost upon them, they're going to pull these poles up so that all the horses and horsemen sort of, you know, impale themselves on these poles. It's going to be like a defense at the last minute and wipe out the cavalry charge. And so, you know, it's a great plan. They've got the wood, they cut it, they sharpen it, they make the plan, they lay the stuff out, it's camouflaged. They're all ready to go, and now there's just one thing left to do. Stand firm. You can have your plan, you can be well-armed, you can know that you want to follow Christ, but there comes the moment when the horses are charging upon you, when the moment of testing is there, and at that moment you can have all the plan in the world, but you need one thing, you need courage to just wait, stand your ground, not run away, and just hold that pole up and uh, stand your ground. And, and that's the moment of testing. You know, I can be all ready, I can be all prayed up, but at some moment, and it comes at different times throughout my day, throughout the week, I have to execute and stand firm in my faith. The moment of testing may come on a Thursday when uh, work gets out early for some reason. You know, there's something in the office and everyone's going home like at 4. And usually you go home like around 6.30 and you're like, oh, 4, you know, this is great. I'm going to go home and surprise the family. This is wonderful. And that's when it comes. That's when that attractive person in the office says, hey, um, getting out early. You, you want to... Uh, you grab dinner with me before you go? Now that's when it happens. And that's when you've got to have your armor on and you've got to have your head in the game and you've got to be ready to stand your ground. Because if not, the cavalry's just going to charge right over you. The moment of testing just comes in one week. And, and in this one week, you lose your job. In that same week, your aunt, who's been like a mother to you, dies. And in that same week, your transmission dies. If this is how it happens in life. This is how it happens. Things just kind of all happen at once and, and they fall apart. And like Job, the tempter comes to you and the tester comes and he says, what is going on? You know, God doesn't, God's not with you. What? Why is God treating you like this? After all you've done for God, God is letting this happen to you. You can't trust him. Forget this. You know, oh, God's left you high and dry. You curse God and die. Walk out on Jesus. It's not worth it. He can't. And then you start going, yeah, you're right. Oh, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God has turned his back on me. Where's God in all this? And I'm telling you, that's the moment of trial. And it comes like a flood. And I have to have my armor on. And I have to stand my ground and be ready and have my head in the game. Or otherwise, I'm going to get swept away with all that stuff instead of standing firm in the midst of intense trials. And it comes when we have opportunities to share the gospel. I'll just tell you one more story. Actually, this was this week this happened to me. I had a, a standing firm incident. Um, I, this gym I go to, uh, there's this guy who uh, works there behind the desk. And I've been talking to him for about two months now. I just come in. And somehow I found out he's a Lord of the Rings fan. So, this, yeah. So, you know, we're instantly, like, bound our souls were bound together. And so, you know, I, I talk Lord of the Rings with him, and then the extended version of Two Towers comes out, and I'm like, oh, have you seen it? And we're talking Lord of the Rings, and he's into Matrix, and so we're talking about the Matrix movies, and, you know, he, he's just, he's a real geek like me. So, um, 
so, so we have this, this fellowship, and so this Monday, this Monday, I came in, I was talking to him, and I found out that Friday was going to be his last day working there. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, well, boy, it's nice, nice knowing you, you know, where you're going to. And, and I got done talking to him, went off to do my exercise or whatever, and it's like the Lord just laid it on my heart, you've got to invite this guy to church. You know, this, I've put this guy in your life for you to, to invite him. And, and I have to be honest with you, you know, I'll just make a confession here. I am a terrible personal evangelist. <laughs> I'll just be honest. I'm terrible at it. Put me in a room with 500 people and a microphone, I can evangelize like crazy. You know, I just go at it. Put me one-on-one across a coffee table, I'm horrible. I really am horrible. I, I don't know why. I always have been. I know what the gospel is. I've been trained in all the little techniques and strategies. I just, you know, I, I believe in relational evangelism. It's just that I'm good at the relational part, but not so much at the evangelism part. I just can't get around to it. So I've always struggled with this as a Christian. And, and so I'm like, okay, i got to invite him to church. So Wednesday comes. I go on Wednesday, and he's there, and we hang out and talk. And I just chickened out. I didn't say anything. So then Friday comes. It's like the last day. I'm like, okay. I know the Lord wants me to invite this guy to church. Not even share the gospel. Just invite him to church, for crying out loud, which isn't even really evangelism. It's like coming, come to a place where you can be evangelized, you know? So it's really simple. So I get these little cards. You know, we have these cards in the back of the church that are like, be my guest at South Shore Baptist, and it has a little map, and, you know, and so I put my name on it and write the service times, and I put it in my pocket. So I go in there Friday, and there he's sitting next to the new girl who's going to replace him. I'm like, oh, no. I can't do this with this girl there. I, I just can't. You know, I was like, not, you know, no one can be looking when I do this. This is like, <sighs> so I'm like, hey, and I go on an exercise, and I'm working out and stuff, and, and I'm getting done, and I'm on the stretching machine over there, and I look over, and she's still there. I'm like, all right, Lord, if you really want me to do this, then you got to get her out of there. <laughs> you got to. She's been there the whole time. I'm like, you got to get her out of there. So I'm like, okay. And, and then, you know, I look over, and sure enough, she just... She just trundles away. I'm like, okay. So, so I put on my coat, and I'm just going over to say, you know, farewell, and just hang out like, and talk more Lord of the Rings with him like we do, and, which I enjoy. And, uh, and, and, but I'm like, okay, am I going to stand firm? Am I going to do what God wants me to do? Or am I going to chicken out here? Am I going to just try to camouflage my faith? And I'm like, i got to do it. So I'm talking, I'm talking. And, and finally, I'm just like, okay, this is my one chance. I go, do you go to church anywhere? And he's like, you know, where'd that come from? He's like, no, I'm, I'm not a church-going man. I'm like, oh, you know, this is going terribly. So then I'm like, hey, well, listen, um, I pastor this church in Hingham, and man, I would love it if you come sometime and worship with us. And here's a card. Yeah. Okay, bye. You know? <laughs> oh, it was so terrible. Uh, you know, so, so why am I telling you this story? To congratulate myself? Obviously not. Um, I, I'm just... I'm just trying to say that, you know, these moments are going to come where God, we know what God wants us to do. We know the, the, the path of obedience, whether it's evangelism or holiness or resisting temptation. And, and in those moments, we've got to put on the armor of God and just take the step of faith. The exciting news, though, is this, that if we will put on the armor of God and trust Him and stand firm, we will be able to stand. You can stand against the devil. It's not a wash. You're not going to get washed out. You can stand firm against him through the power of Christ. Is there something that God is calling you to do? Is there some area of obedience that God is calling you to? 
I, I just encourage you to, even if it's lame like me and, and you do it poorly, I mean, just do it and execute and stand firm in Christ in the armor of God. Hey, let's um, pray, and then we'll have the praise team come and lead us in a final song. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would give us a, a heart that's in love with you. We want real Christianity, Lord. We don't want just church attendance. We want to be filled up with Christ. I, 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 want, I want Christ to so fill me up that when people bump into me, that's like they, they're bumping into heaven. Not because I'm anything, but because Christ is in my life. Lord Jesus, I, I want you to be the desire of my heart. But like Paul, I must admit that I'm still pressing on. I haven't reached there yet. So God, I pray for all of us as a church that you would fill us up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then once we're filled up with him, once our hearts are, are, are satisfied in him, once our minds are set and fixed on him, then Lord, help us to stand firm in the day of evil. When those trials and temptations come into our lives, Lord, help us to execute our faith and to, to do it and to stand firm and to uh, not be moved, to be like a centurion, to be like uh, William Wallace, to stand firm against the devil's attacks and to obey you, even though it seems hopeless. So, Lord, I pray you help us to do this, that the evil one might not have the victory here at South Shore Baptist. Lord God, we pray, help us to be your witnesses in the world. Give us opportunities this week to share the love of Jesus because of what he's done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.